Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Winder, and thanks for tuning in to another podcast of Beyond Everything Radio. And as always, I have a question for you. Do difficult teens really exist? What's really behind teens who are rebellious, disrespectful, or willfully disobedient? In today's podcast and post, we conclude our series on parenting teens with a look at difficult teens. I'll offer some philosophical considerations which can lend themselves to very practical strategies for helping these challenging situations. Join me now as we see beyond the difficult teen and discover the common threads which account for so much of the pain and confusion which exists in our households. everybody and thank you so much for coming back to yet another podcast of beyond everything radio i am your host my name is kevin winder welcome to the program thanks so much for tuning in and if you are just now getting here you are at part seven we are on the conclusion of our series on parenting teenagers. And I know that many of you have asked me to do this. And those of you who did are probably feeling like, now I wish I didn't ask you to do that. (laughs) Now, I don't know what your scenario is, folks. I do know that parenting teenagers can be a challenge. It stretches us as parents. Um, If we don't understand what's going on in the mind and the biology and the sociology and all the aspects that are uh, going on in the minds and hearts of our teens, we can easily make assumptions and uh, derail things. We can have simple uh, parenting behaviors that work great when they're a child or a young, younger person. And then they fall on their face and fail horribly as a teenager. Um, So much of it is environment. You know, these teens are given to public education systems where they are surrounded by thousands of the worst advice that (laughs) exists in the planet. Um, You got media challenges. You've got what do they do with their spare time? The parents are completely disengaged. They're working all the time. Uh, There's financial struggles. There's all of this stuff that's layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. And I listen, parents, listen to me, please. I know that I am holding parents responsible. I know that I am asking a lot of you. And I do that because I truly believe it's within your power to bring the healing that you seek to your family. It does require some self-awareness. It does require some soul work on your part. I've been saying that all along. I'm not blaming you. I do know that some situations are different Some teens are different and harder than others. What might have worked great with your first or oldest is failing miserably with your youngest or vice versa. I I understand all of these dynamics. Um, What I'm asking of you is to dig deep, to look closer, to really explore what it is that you are doing differently uh, or that you could do differently that would potentially change is this problem erupting from lack of engagement are you gone all the time working and then when you're home are you not really there 
Um, is it a divorce? Is it a massive struggle in the family that has put them into a hard place? You know, is it terrible friends? Is it a neighborhood that's violent and scary and now you're fearful for their life and you make them stay home and watch video games or TV all day because you feel it's safer than reality? I don't know the, the situation. There's so many. But folks, I know that I have compassion for you. And what I'm offering today are some very surface level philosophical considerations, which will help you if you can hear them and apply them. Uh, the question really becomes whether or not you'll go that far. And I'm hoping that your love for your son or daughter is enough to make you go to whatever length you have to uh, to bring healing in your family. So today we conclude the series. It's part seven. It's called Parenting Teens Part 7, The Difficult Teen. It is podcast number 374. So let's jump right in. Now I've talked to many, many parents over the years, and if you're just joining, then you missed out on the fact that I have worked with adolescents for more than 20 years. I started my work in life as a youth pastor. I've worked in residential treatment facilities, a number of them. I've worked in prisons. I've worked in juvie halls. I've had uh, adopted brothers in my family who were these absolute difficult children um, that I'm going to be talking about. Um, I've had you know youth groups of nothing but supposed difficult children, problem children. I'm super familiar with this. I've also raised two great, amazing teenagers, and I've literally had zero back talk, no lip. I have never had a day of drama from my teenage daughter. I've never, you know, these are things that most people think I'm lying about. We don't, I have never fought with my teen son. I've never yelled at them um, or any of that. Uh, and you might think, gosh, how is that even possible? And maybe it's, it, it's not in your family, but let's just say for the sake that it is. And what is it that is possible that I could see that maybe you haven't seen? That's what's behind this today, okay? So over the years, I've had parents share with me their experiences. And they've come to me for help with these extremely challenging situations. And like I've said, I know each teen and circumstance is different, but I hope in today's conclusion, I can just share with you, I can show you the themes throughout this series that I've kind of bubbled to the surface here that will apply if you want to bring healing to the most severe situations. Or you can take a, a, a very touchy situation and turn it around so that it's not you know, on edge all the time. You don't have to live on eggshells. You don't have to worry about all of these. You can, you can counter correct. You can course correct and perhaps bring more enjoyment and healing into your family. But first, let me make it clear here that when a teen, and we're talking about difficult teen, a difficult teen is usually that one who's potentially engaging in self-destructive behavior. They're drinking, they're partying, they're out with friends who are drinking and doing drugs. They're 
potentially violent. They have weapons. They, they, they go around with people who are doing horrible, illegal things. Um, they're dangerous, potentially, or addicted. Right? Now, you need to hear this, that as a parent, these are situations which require you to realize the severity of what is possible. They could get killed. They could kill somebody. Um, and this is a time when you need to be seeking professional assistance. Don't just back out and say, well, you know, uh, you know, yeah, my team was out drinking and driving or, you know, I found a gun or I found something else in their backpack. You know, these are times when it may be required to have the teen removed from the home. If they are violent, if they harm siblings, if they are, you know, dangerous to anybody, for the safety of all, you might have to have that teen removed. So do not hesitate to seek professional help if that is this le- the, the level that this has come to. Okay. A lot of this can be attributed to biochemical, uh, emotional instability, physical damage, other kinds of things. When a, a, a young person goes this far off the rails, there's often a really big cause, okay? So maybe go and explore that. Now, the help I'm going to offer you is first philosophical, and I know sometimes that's annoying to people uh, because a philos- a, to offer you a philosophy is really just saying, here's a general direction. It's like saying, oh, if you want to go there, you had to head north. Um, and it's not like, hey, take this highway, go north, turn left at this street, and then go north on this street. It's not specific. It's, it's general. It's saying head north. And the reason I give you the philosophy is because I don't know what direction each of you is heading, but chances are it's not north. You know, Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this post. Out of your general north direction, a strategy will emerge or can emerge based on each person's unique situation, okay? But there are three, at least three, underlying or operating philosophical assertions that I am going to assume are part of what is in your family, okay? If these are lacking in your family, if, if you don't understand these underlying philosophical assertions, if, if you don't get this, start with these, okay? <laughs> so, like, these have to be assumed in order to kind of move forward. Does that, that make sense? All right, number one, the parents must be acting in sacrificial love towards their teen. So if you really want to get to the heart of the problem, the first place to look is whether the parents are acting in sacrificial love or if they even know what that means. Most parenting problems are not because a parent is sacrificing in true self-emptying love. It's usually out of spite. Sometimes parents, moms or sons are in, or fathers are in competitions with their sons or daughters. There's a residual anger with their kids. There's a kind of revenge. There's jealousy. Some, some parents resent or even hate their kids. 
Now, if a parent lacks the self-awareness to see their own toxic motivations, which are behind their parenting decisions and actions, there is not a single strategy a professional who can help you or your teen because they are and will remain victims of a low consciousness environment which is you parents, okay? So I'm going to come right out of the gate and I'm going to smack you on the head with a hammer and I hope I wake you up so that you can see that if, you tr- if you're not acting in true sacrificial love, but you think you are, and it's really a, a subterfuge, if it's really jealousy, if it's really competition or anger or revenge or you know resentment, uh, folks, your teen is not the problem. You are. Okay, so if that's not functioning, start there. Okay, number two, it, this, if you want healing, parents must be aligned in their philosophies of how to raise parents. And they have to share the same resolve to bring healing through this sacrificial love. So almost all the time when I see a disruption in behavior, You have two parents Um, and, you know, oftentimes when a teen goes off the rails, these parents have really divergent approaches to parenting. One is horribly permissive. One is overly strict and the two never meet. One has a faith-based system and they're trying to lead their kid one way. The other is not. One is trying to uh, teach morality. The other is saying, forget about morality. Right. Uh, It's really divergent. This can be due to divorce because you got one parent who's fell off the rails themselves. Right. And now they're out of the picture. This can be they live in two different places, so they get two different messages all the time. Um, It's absence of one parent. It could be a number of factors. Right. But whatever it is, the parents are not a united front like that. I don't want you to miss how vital that is to helping bring healing to your family. And parents, if you're divorced, you can align if you choose to. But if you are just hating your ex and you resent them and you resent how they're parenting, you are contributing, both of you, to a problem here. Okay. There is also married people who do not see eye to eye. Uh, One parent undermines the advice of the parent, the other. So children learn to play one parent against the other. uh, And that's just simply a divorce that's taken place in the parent's life that even though if they're married, they still remain essentially divorced. They're not a united front. This adds so much confusion to the existing pain and disorientation. Because a teen can simply go to the parent to get the ones, the, go to the parent which will give them what they want. If you're not a united front, you are most likely contributing to your difficult teen. Okay? And here we go. Number three under of the operating philosophical assertions here is that teen's behavior is derivative of of the true problem. So like my teen is disobedient and staying out late. They break their curfew and they don't even care. Uh, When they have an attitude, they're rebellious. They're doing something illegal or immoral or fattening. 
whatever it is. Uh, the parents often focus on that behavior and not the underlying causes. In my experience, behavioral problems are almost always linked to the deeper issues that relate to a teen's identity, a teen's safety, their relationship skills, a sense of purpose or a sense of hope. Those are what's behind the behavior. And sometimes there is something biological or medical or dietary that you really have to first investigate and then remedy to treat an underlying behavioral problem. Like they could have a biochemical problem. They could have a, a, some kind of mental disformity. They could have a tumor. They could have something that really needs to be evaluated. Um, so check all those kinds of things out first um, and then look at yourself as well. Okay. So those are the three assumptions. Like almost every time there's a problem, they almost always dovetail into those three buckets. Okay. Now you might be surprised to just how these underlying issues tend to foster difficult teens. And the reason is because the parents who don't know how to truly love their child or they lack alignment or who's always chasing a behavior modification of some sort, they're, they're often those who have done so for a very long time. A, a parent's lack of self-awareness usually goes back prior to having babies. A, a, a parent who has no self-awareness, I mean, their teens didn't have it much when they were young children. They didn't have much when they were babies, and they probably didn't have much when the parents were dating. And, you know, ICUs used to lead uh, youth groups with nothing but troubled teens. Like we would go after only those problem kids who'd never darken the door of a church or go to some kind of a program or whatever. And when you'd have 20 or 30 of these problem teens, I almost never had any problems. They never ran away. They never rebelled. They followed the rules just fine. And this really illuminates that much of the teen's problem is the relationship dynamic with parents. And so if you ultimately need to get professional help, I mean, can I advise you to seek a family therapist who understands family dynamics? This means that the teen is not the only one getting therapy. It's all the parents, siblings, and people involved that are getting therapy. Okay? So here are my suggestions for handling difficult teens. And I've got four of them. And the fourth one, I've got a little, it's a little longer of a riff, okay? And then I'm going to give you a case study of how this kind of applies to give you a sense of what I might consider in a really difficult case. I hope this helps you. Um, but check yourself right now. Um, if I say something that kind of causes you to, like your BS detector to go into the red zone, uh, be sensitive to that, okay? And, you know, however long this takes, it's going to be worth hearing. The first one, immediately exchange authority for influence. A lot of parenting dysfunction with teens is because they are using authority instead of influence. This is when you get rebel. A teen will almost always rebel against authority. They cannot rebel against influence. So if you followed my first parenting series, 
when a baby's born, they have the parent has a hundred percent authority and zero percent influence. And when they become adults, a parent is to have zero authority and a hundred percent influence. And what this means is that if a parent is still trying to manage behavior with threat, power plays, bribery, intimidation, then they have not established sufficient influence with their teen and they're relying on their diminishing authority. And a teen can see right through that, that I don't really have to listen to what you say. What you should, parents should be doing is moving everything into an influence model, not an authority model. So parents who control everything never empower independent decisions for their kids. And they really want that. So they push against it and they rebel. Parents who control nothing, who are way too permissive, have basically abdicated parenting to their kids. And they go off the rails then because the teens truly do want guidance. What this means is that by the time a child is eight or nine, a parent has to begin a coaching model, not a ruler authority figure, right? So by the time you're in your teen years, parenting should almost be entirely based on influence. So this sounds like asking your teen, well, what do you think you should do in this situation instead of telling your teens what to do, right? When they say, hey, I want to go to the party on Friday, Okay, what do you think is going, what do you think you're going to see there? What do you, kinds of influences do you think are going to be positive and which ones are going to be negative? How do you intend to handle those kinds of situations? Are you prepared to do that? Are you ready to face this? Right? Those are coaching questions. You know, as a, otherwise you're going to go the authority route, which is, no, you can't go. I don't want you. I just, I think there's a bunch of losers there. I don't want you hanging out with that kind of crap. I don't want you to, you know, and then all of a sudden you just put a hard no on it. And now you have rebellion. Okay. You have to learn the difference between authority and influence and influence. And if you have a problem teen immediately as of right now, stop using authority and start using influence. It, it may take you some time to gain it if you haven't got it already, but that's my advice. Number two, control your emotions if you have any hope at all of asking your teen to control theirs, right? I don't know how many times I've told people I, when my daughter is a teen, oh my gosh, you got a 14-year-old daughter, you have a 16-year-old daughter, that must be hell in your family, right? And I'm like, no, it's not at all. My daughter's not an emotional basket case. She never goes off the rails. I never, I've never seen that actually. You know, so what happens? See, a parent who is emotionally reactive, who's explosive, doesn't control their anger, who gets overly dramatic or emotionally off the leash will model for their kids the emotional aptitude for the household. You see, and nearly all fighting, all these horrible feelings that emerge from these punctuated emotional reactions all come from an inability to manage emotion. Now, we've got this toxic psychobabble out there that says, oh, you should feel free to, you have to feel your feelings and you have to express your feelings and feelings aren't bad. You got to blah, blah. And all we've done is just give vent to stupidity. This is a learned behavior. 
in our world is mistaken to say that this is normal. Emotions are not to be ignored. I'm validating emotions. I validate how you feel. You can't change how you feel. Nobody should tell you this is what you should feel and what you shouldn't feel. Feelings are feelings. They just are what they are. Emotions are not to be ignored. But emotions are to be governed by the intellect and not given a free vent. In other words, we have a mind, an intellect, which is superior to our emotions. And emotions must be kept in check. A parent who learns this can train their kids to do likewise. A parent who can't learn this or won't learn it because emotional outbursts are how they manipulate things and get what they want are going to be highly sympathetic to emotional outbursts. So the pain that the family feels after a blow up is actually completely preventable. It can be replaced with peaceful, respectful engagement. Simply turn the volume down on your emotion. Don't get sucked into every single thing. A parent who reacts or screams or elevates all of those things is contributing to the learning process for your young person. Listen, emotions are real, but emotions are not reality. Like you have to be able to realize that. Most emotions are a seven to a 10, when in reality, the thing you're reacting to is a two or a three. See, when my kids were young, their mother and I acknowledged their emotional reactions, but we did not react to them. A, a, a tantrum never got them the candy at the store, the fluffy pants at the Kmart or whatever, right? We did not react to emotional reactions. We literally ignored them. We did not escalate or raise our intensity. Like if our child were being noisy in the back seat, I wouldn't shout. I'd simply state what I wanted in a calm way. And if they ignored it or missed it, then that was the consequence. So no shouting, no arguing. We stayed, stated our expectations calmly. As a result, our kids learned to process emotions, not to be taken hostage by their emotions. You can see how powerful this is now as they move into adulthood. This is really important during teen years where many of their you know, bad behaviors are actually just reactions or overreactions to emotions that they never tamed. So start with yourself and see if you can't teach your teens to learn what you need to learn. Or if you've learned it, teach them to do the same. Number three. Your teen's attitude might just be your attitude, okay? So think about this. You can't get your teen to unload the dishes or help around the house without them being snarky or hurtful or hypercritical or whatever. So where do you suppose they learned that from? See, in my experience, someone in the family behaves this way and has taught it to them. Where else would, would they get that? You know, it, what kinds of critical things are said to a teenager who didn't do their chores or didn't do their homework? What kind of lecture do you give them if they fail to do what they're told to do, right? When you overpower with authority, 
And then they choose, I can't react, I can't go along with that. They have to get away from it by doing what? By not doing chores or not doing homework or whatever it is. See, do the parents feel entitled to just walk away from the table after they eat and let the kids do the cleaning? You know, when, when a teen asks for help or assistance or for the parent to come and engage with them over something, does the parent put it off? Say, I'll, I'll come see it later or deflect it like, oh, you know, I'm busy right now or pacify the request because it comes at an inconvenient time. Hold on. I'm watching the game. I'm, I'm on the news or you're interrupting my my downtime. You know, um, like if your child is inconveniencing you, <laughs> like that's a check engine light. If these trends or attitudes exist in your house, then you are teaching your teen to be entitled, transactional, dismissive, disconnected. See, and you're showing how to value something other than them, like the TV or your downtime or whatever else you think is more important than attending to your child. Just learn to be here now. Engage. Be here. Okay? Number four. This is the one I'm going to riff on, and so stay tuned. You might want to check out if this offends you, but um, yeah, because I know it, it will. Here it is, number four. You got a difficult teen. This is stop number one, perhaps. Eradicate all video games and gaming systems from your home. No, just unplug them. Don't just say you're grounded from them. Get rid of them. Now, I know that there are many examples where gaming is employed as an alternative form of entertainment or TV or some other media. It can be controlled. It can be just fun entertainment, right? I get that it can be that. I will, I will offer that in most cases it is not that. Um, the reasons for eradicating, getting rid of video games completely and entirely are many especially in the case of teens with a behavior attitude problem. Uh, for too many parents, they rely on gaming as a babysitter or a pacifier, not realizing that this media interaction establishes brain chemistry. It establishes neurotransmitter pathways in a young developing brain which contribute to these behavioral problems. Video games cause a massive release of dopamine, adrenaline, and numerous other biochemicals, which actually rewire the brain with the brain's neuroplasticity. And so as the brain gets a shock of these really high doses of, of neurotransmitters, it tries to regain its biochemical homeostasis. And in doing so, it induces the chemicals which cause melancholy, depression, and some anxiety uh, to kind of counteract the overgrowth of the dopamine receptors which are being formed by this, this process. It's really common for teens who are addicted to gaming to also get depressed, to be unmotivated, to be easily distracted. Right? These are all results of the programming uh, really shaping the brain in an addictive way. And then, of course, kids get sent to the therapist and they're prescribed psychotropic interventions, which become a lifelong train of labels and more interventions. So I'm here to tell you part of this cause is your video game addiction. 
And I'm going to make a few more comments about this. Video games give the illusion that the teens are accomplishing something when in fact they are not. A high score is not an accomplishment. Just because the world calls obsessive video gaming addiction an esport, like the pathology of our world embracing esports is the is profoundly pathological. Like it's really sad. Uh, and even if it has economic gains, like I see these esports winners, they, they get millions of dollars from winning you know, these silly games. And, and I know that it, it's real to them, but that doesn't mean that your teen has accomplished anything, especially if they're seeking to be an esports genius. What are they really seeking? But highly addictive behavior and you know, that lends themselves to be horrible in social environments and worse, you know, stuck into a virtual reality. Accomplishments are how a teen truly learns to develop appropriate self-confidence out in the world. As a general rule, the longer they spend in the game environment, the less capable they are in real life. I know there are exceptions. There's amazing young people who do video games and it's not a real issue. I have heard all of your arguments. It's been great for our family. Gaming is opportunity cost. In other words, for every hour they spend playing a game, they lose the opportunity to gain true skill and confidence. And mindless entertainment has its place, but I can assure you, if you have a video game console, you are well beyond mindless entertainment. And, you know, in my family, we had no video games. We had no cable TV, right? Um, my kids learned to create businesses. They developed their skills in athletics. That we, we used tech to gain engineering skills like my son on AutoCAD and 3D printing and building remote control airplanes. Like it's taken years to develop this skill. If he was playing Minecraft, he would have built some lame tower and had none of these skills. And so my plea to you is to realize that every hour they spend on a game is a wasted hour they can't get back. These are not only, you know, things that they're missing out on valuable skills, but these are awesome. These are also things that can create economic engines for them as young people. And since gaming has also become a medium of communicating with friends, it becomes far more substantial issue if it's removed. If removing the gaming console from your teen's life would ruin them socially or force a biochemical withdrawal uh, or behavioral problems would erupt if they lost it, then you have given far too much ground to that already. And if you add to this the easy progression to pornography use, the diminishment of ability in social interactions, and then you have a re recipe for a loss of a generation. And this is already on display as we have gamers that are now second generation. You know, their parents, dads mostly, are massive gamers. And so now the children are massive gamers. So a parent who's unwilling to remove or strictly curtail such a toxic form of media from their home needs to examine the benefits they derive from the 
arrangement. Maybe the parent just wants it, and so they allow it for their kids. That's like saying, well, I want my beer, so I'm going to allow my kids to have access to it and drink it if they want. Now, if a parent has to bribe behavior with screen time or use it as a threat, the parent has already forsaken parenting. You realize that, right? Again, there may be appropriate supervised limited use of gaming or simulation tech. And the test to whether or not you have that in your household is if selling the console creates a huge disruption. If selling it and having no more video games forever is, a, is no big deal, then you have gaming. If selling it means the end of the teens or the parents' homeostasis, then gaming has your family. And in most cases, a family simply chooses video games over real sports, real community, real connection, because it's cheaper, it's easier to access, and it requires nothing from the parents. So there you go. You can start your post now and blame me later. Let me just close, and I know this is a little bit longer of a post, but I really feel like if you're hearing this, you have a chance to heal a disrupted family. Let me share with you a little case study of how some of this kind of comes together. I remember trying to help some parents who had a 16-year-old son who was completely out of control. He was doing drugs. He was drinking alcohol. He was sexually active. He was falling behind in school, failing, in fact, and occasionally violent in his home. He was really harmful to his brothers and sisters, but he and the dad came to fisticuffs. Now, he disregarded his parents, uh, ignored his mother, um, and was mean to his siblings. So meanwhile, the parents could not imagine taking his gaming console away when I suggested it. It seemed too severe. <laughs> so they allowed him to eat their food and they would buy him new clothes and all that kind of stuff like a parent should, right? Uh, but basically, he did as he pleased. He ignored every rule in the house and did whatever he wanted. And so basically, I told the parents, you are funding his party and you are funding his demise, as I put it to them. So my suggestion to help them was stop funding the party. Uh, go to a scorched earth existence. Go to the Goodwill and get one pair of really ugly pants and two horrible ugly shirts. Then at night when he's sleeping, you take all of his clothes and leave those that really ugly pairs, two shirts and uh, you know one pair of pants. And then leave two pairs of socks and two pairs of underwear and take everything else. Take all of his games. Take all of his tech, his phone. Take all of his music. Leave him with his homework and just a basic meal plan with no treats of any kind. No... No snacks, no Pop-Tarts, none of that. No soda. You get water. You get the basic meals everybody else has. Now, this advice was to just take everything that fed his toxic, self-destructive life and leave the most rudimentary existence and care. And this was in part to test the resolve of the parents. And then I suggested that they don't say anything about these changes. They don't react any longer because you know he's going to blow up. So... Just sit back and disengage. And then if he becomes destructive and punches a hole in the wall or does something else, then you call the authorities. But chances are he's not going to want to go out in his lame pants and ugly shirt. And, of course, he won't have a phone to go call his friends. So he'll have to go figure this stuff out. So think through the implications of this. His so-called friends are not going to last. His social credit is going to wane. His dependence on the family will reemerge and he'll be cut off from the main channels that are feeding his nonsense. 
as he reengages, he could earn back a better life by, you know, tr- you know, reengaging with the parents and the family again. Or he could just go off the deep end with his lame pants and shirt. See, that's the whole point. It's like it's it needs to get the parenting back in love with this child. So anyway, the teen went off the rails. They couldn't imagine doing such things to him, uh, you know, borderlined on abuse in their mind. And so later, uh, I, I do believe that, uh, you know, he ended up getting a girl pregnant and then they killed the baby. Um, I, I believe he went off and created more problems, failed out of school. But the fact here is that this is not an isolated incident. This is something that a lot of parents are just enduring. They're hoping that their teens don't do something horrible before they can eject them from their life and family. And it doesn't need to be this way. Healing can actually come to a family. But as I've said in this series, it all starts with parents. If beneath it all is really an unwanted teen, then we should not be surprised to have a bunch of unwanted behaviors. And so the fix, the correction, is just the converse of this. Loving our teens is not the same as needing them or wanting them, but it's understanding them and helping them to know who they truly are in God. We can only lead them from where we've been ourselves as parents. So loving our teens means that parents have to begin by doing the soul work required to mitigate the pain that we otherwise inflict on them. As Richard Rohr says, we can either transmit our pain or we can transform it. My question is, how many parents have transformed the pain of their youth and how many of you are simply transmitting it? Consider these verses from Scripture, which really do place parents at the epicenter of responsibility, primarily fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Amazing. Listen to that. Ephesians 6, 4. I want you to think about this. By now, you've learned that the most difficult teens are actually the unaware or the skilled, unskilled parents. See, I've worked in many residential treatment centers for teens and prisons for adults And with the exception of those who have a severe biological disorder or mental uh, deficiency of some sort, these teens in these centers and these adults in these prisons, none of them came from loving, integrated, and self-aware parents. That should be really obvious. But if it's surprising to you, that loving parents don't produce kids in treatment centers and adults in prisons, then this should shock you into awareness of your responsibility as a parent. Our children are the reflection of not only our parenting skills, but our ability to remain in a loving relationship. If we don't know love, we can't love our children. And that behavior comes out of lack of love. And so help for our teens is possible, parents. And change can happen even within the next hour if we choose it. But the change we seek in our youth will always start 
with us. If I can support you in this process, please don't hesitate to reach out and we can discuss it. God bless you.